For this, our 10th season, we will focus on telling true stories about the men and women we have come to know over 28 years of recovery. Each episode will tell the story of what life was like as an addicted or alcoholic person, what happened to wake that person up, and what is life like today. Not all stories are ones of success. Some of our friends didn't make it as they relapsed and so far have not come in from the cold. Some died in circumstances that had nothing to do with their disease. Others had a rough start, but they persevered and now enjoy a full and productive life. Some are old guys like me, and others are relative youngsters who serve as great examples to other younger addicts. Our stories describe addicts and alcoholics of many different cultures, a range of socioeconomic status, different generations, gender types, and sexual preferences, if they're relevant to their story. I like to say that addiction and alcoholism are equal opportunity predators. They don't discriminate. And you will see how the stories we share about our friends will prove the truth of that statement. Six, Season 10. April, a young life cut short. April is such a hopeful time of year in the northern parts of North America. In New York City, it's already getting very warm on most days in the month of April. Winter's long gone by now, not even a hint of its existence only six weeks earlier. I cannot remember exactly how I met April, who was then about 23 years old, at best, at most, and I was perhaps 35 or so at the time, not exactly April and December, more like April and July. (laughs) I think she was playing me from the start. I never did get anywhere with her sexually, but I did feel a very strong magnetic attraction right from the beginning. I thought she shared that, but she was in control right from the start, so it's really hard to tell. The deal in mind was that I would get her cocaine and she would pay me back not with sex, but with a variety of services, including reflexology massages. She was attending a school in reflexology, which for those of you who are not familiar with it, essentially is a specialized form of foot massage and facial massage. And she was doing this, she was going to school near my office in Lower Manhattan, and I would walk over after work and be one of her guinea pig students. I was getting all of this, uh, at least an hour's worth of reflexology for uh, just showing up. It was almost as good as having sex with her anyway. She was not just a skinny kid. She was a big girl with a coyishness that could just charm any man into believing he was the one and the only one. She had plenty of curvature in all the right places, and if this description gets me arrested in this politically woke time, so be it. She was always a sight to behold. I can see her now. She somehow talked me into giving her yes, just giving her my somewhat battered but perfectly usable Volkswagen Rabbit. She got the Rabbit before I got anything back for it, tell you the truth. This is what slick addicts do. They play other people for their money or their access to drugs, which cost money. I'll get killed for saying this, but in New York, the women had power with sex and the men had the power with money. I never did find out exactly where April lived, but she would call and ask me to meet her for dinner. On me, of course, there was some sort of promise for more and, and she would get us a cab after dinner. And we'd end up in an after-hours club. There were dozens of them in New York and the city in the 80s where you, you bought some cocaine right there or you brought it with you and you used it at a table set for two or four people. 
I know they had rooms further back for more intimate things, but April never took me back there. She just did her coke right there and hooked up with some other people that we laughed with and shared a bottle of wine and did some coke. What she did do was have me watch her strip strip act right there, but that's all it was, pure voyeurism. She did that. She did a strip act for me and for others. And this is late night in New York, so anything is possible. There's no violence involved. These are very nice, very well-appointed clubs. It was sort of a decadent uh, opulism and elegance to all of this. But she would call me in a panic from wherever she was in the city. Or And I lived in Fort Lee, New Jersey, across the Hudson River, near the George Washington Bridge. She'd call me at all times of day or night. Time meant nothing to April. It was all about the coke. And I wasn't all that into it yet. I was indeed into her, but not close enough to really know her. It was always a rescue mission out of a scrape she would get herself into, and not always all that close. One time I drove all the way to Canarsie in Brooklyn that felt like a 100 miles away in the middle of the night. And there was always a complicated story about a guy who lent her money, but she couldn't pay him back, and he was going to rape her, or some crazy thing like that. Or that one time she said she did get raped, and what the hell was she doing in the Bronx at the very end of the A train at 3.15 a.m.? Anyway, you tell me. But hear me out. I was the volunteer, not the victim. If it wasn't for my libido driving my actions, none of what she did would matter at all, would it? She was such a beautiful woman, a pathological liar to the core, but I didn't care. I just wanted to be close to this magnificent but deeply fault creature. But two incomplete people do not one whole person make. Quite the opposite. The dysfunction of this non-relationship was so great that it could only qualify as a tragic comedy. There was a night where I fell asleep on the couch in someone's apartment while she was in another room with a cop she had met that night. And of course he was all aglow over her too. Next thing I know he was... He has a short-barreled thirty-eight pointed at my temple while he whispers that it was my turn next if I touched her. Couldn't believe it. Woke me right up, though. Here was jealousy fueled by sexual desire late at night somewhere in Brooklyn, as I dimly recall. I was death-knocking on the door. I may have been playing with fire, but she was playing Russian roulette with her own life. I didn't know she had a family until I met them at her funeral in Lower Manhattan. Turns out her family was cultured, delightful, and appreciative. My being one of only two men who cared enough for her to show up at her funeral. She fell from a subway platform. Unlikely that she was pushed. Perhaps she was so high that she just wobbled and fell. The EMTs found my number among her things and called me to let me know. April was a dream, a wisp of a thing, a small voice that promised great happiness and endless joy in this insane world. We can go places together, she would say, if only that were so. But the addiction to coke took her away from me, it took her away from everybody, far away from me and from her loving family and all the others who fell in love with her too. So what did we learn about her story? The story of April's life and death, for that matter. One, had I, Bruno J., even known about the possibility of recovery, I believe April would not have bought it since she had not yet reached her bottom. Two, 
Nor did it appear as though her family tried to intervene, although I can't be sure she never talked about her habit or her family. Would have been great to get to know them. Number three, two dysfunctional people do not one whole person make. Our relationship was one of extreme codependency and addiction fueled by unrequited sexual desire. For April's short life was ever more tragic in that she was extremely intelligent, savvy, stylish, and personable. All the makings of a successful life cut so short by a powerful and deadly addiction. Our podcast is sponsored by SafeHouseRehab.com, a modern approach to recovery. To learn more, visit us at SafeHouseRehab.com.